land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. Hello, thanks for joining us today. This is our two cents segment. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. G'day, Chris Bates. How's it going, Chris? Hey, doing very well, mate. What's uh, what's happening over in the UK? How are you doing? Oh, just watching the cricket today and the British Open golf as well starting uh, this week. So it's all happening. Uh, the weather's been a bit mixed though, so hopefully that can hold a... Hold off so uh, we get a result in the cricket one way or the other. Uh, how about yourself? How's your week been? Uh, it's been good. I uh, hurt my hand at futsal last night. So lucky I don't do a job that, um, you know, I need to use my hands too much. It was, uh, we won the game, so that's all that matters. Um, how long are you staying in the UK for? Are you um, heading back here anytime soon? I am indeed, because we've got the Rask Roadshow coming up very soon. So don't forget to book your tickets. We'll put a link in the show notes. We're doing the Roadshow all around the country, uh, Victoria, Perth. Um, Adelaide. I'm, I'm speaking at a couple of the New South Wales events and in Sydney. So um, yeah, I'll be on a plane fairly soon. Um, so hopefully uh, the cricket goes our way and then it'll be a more enjoyable flight home. So uh, uh, <laughs> f- forgive my ignorance, but what is futsal? Is that just Futsal is like, uh, like indoor, but it's played outdoor. It's uh, like a, a five-a-side soccer, football, um, but it's uh, over 35s and you'd be surprised how... Um, how uh, much people want to win in that game it's uh it's amazing it's very fast paced still get um, injured <laughs> yeah and you definitely get injured because it's a pretty hard surface so uh i got away with one last night it could be a lot worse than it was but um what's um what else is happening with work pete any exciting any purchases happening in brisbane what's happening yes yes we've got a we did get a purchase over the line this week in brisbane um just around about the million dollar price point um in the north side suburbs of brisbane so yeah, it's been an interesting 
year. Um, you know, we were talking about the housing downturn, but there just hasn't been that much stock, and that's really underpinned the market, especially in Brisbane. I think there's a real shortage, uh, certainly of quality housing available, and actually a bit of an undersupply as well. So the apartment market's been strong. Um, so it's always good to it feels good to get them across the line because it's um it's been a hard slog sometimes actually getting properties purchased. Um how about you? Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, it's very it's a very similar story, right? I mean a lot of um we've had a lot of purchases, not a lot, you know, a handful in the last week under a million dollars. We also have one very close to ten million dollars um in, in the lower north um uh, lower North Shore of Sydney. So um, we had the two extremes. We haven't been doing many over that sort of 1.5 to 2. You know, we usually do quite a high percentage of clients in that space. Um, and that's because it's been a big freeze of the market. It's been very low stock, which is what you're talking about. And your other point around people in the apartment market staying strong, absolutely. We've, we're have we seeing this dial down of budgets because of borrowing capacities, but also because people um, are a little bit more apprehensive of having bigger mortgages because of higher interest rates and the uncertainty around that. Um, it's going to be interesting because there's a, definitely a bit of um, uh, stress and pain with, with mortgages at the moment. Um, you know, we haven't got, uh, we've got one client on a payment holiday out of, you know, a thousand, let's call it. Um, but we've definitely got quite a few clients coming to us who are, you know, looking at options on how to stay in their homes and, you know, and how they're going to manage payments when they come off fixed. And, um, you know, there's things like maternity leave coming and maybe the bonuses didn't come um, that they're expecting if they're in, say, the construction industry, et cetera. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of concern. And But people are getting ahead of it. They're not just going and defaulting on their loan and missing payments. They're they're thinking about things wisely. Like, how can I do this? What's my alternative? What What's my options of getting through this storm? Um, especially with homes, investors are a bit different. Um, we are seeing quite a few clients um, that are potentially selling investments that uh, they plan to keep longer term, but they also go, well, it's actually not a bad decision to sell because they can recycle their debt, pay off their home, which is a high interest rate, um, and then re-borrow in time to um, for a debt restructuring purpose as well. So, yeah, lots happening at work. There's um, lots of people redoing numbers and, um, yeah, touching base. So um, let's get into it, Pete. Um, what's our three stories this week? Yeah, that's certainly showing up in the numbers, isn't it? More investors selling. Yeah. And I think generally lenders are very keen to work with stressed borrowers these days. They're not really that incentivized to uh, push home buyers or borrowers to the wall, uh, forcing defaults or forced sales. So, um, it's good to hear that people are getting on the front foot and being proactive there. So the big three stories this week, um, firstly, construction costs uh, finally easing in the second quarter of 2023. So we'll take a look at that. And I think there's still some uncertainty here about what happens ahead, Chris, um, given all the infrastructure spend, build to rent coming online and all of that. So we'll have a look at that. Secondly, new Reserve Bank of Australia governor has been announced, Michelle Bullock, first female governor, which... Um, Attracted a lot of uh, media for, for being the first female governor, but also um, more interesting to have a think about what's ahead um, for monetary policy. So we'll take a look at that. And then thirdly, a um, couple of news articles this week talking about the international student intake, uh, which is rocketed back over the past year, um, adding to the housing shortage pressures um, with the IPA saying that 70% of new housing is being occupied by international students. Now, whether or not uh, that's quantifiable is a different question, but certainly an interesting subject for debate. So should we start with the uh, construction costs, Chris, and take a look at that? 
Yeah, let's definitely kick off with what the story is about, Pete, because I've definitely got some you know, other thoughts that's been speaking to clients and some articles came out yesterday from Charter Keck, um, which was really interesting as well. So yeah, what did you read about? Well, the Cordell Construction Cost Index, which is now comes under the CoreLogic umbrella, construction cost growth was 0.7% in the quarter. So that's the lowest since 2020 and actually now below the decade average. Normally, construction costs go up by a little bit more than 1% per quarter. And um, residential building activity from the ABS, I mean, that's running at about $15 billion a quarter now. So that's down about 20% from the highs. Now, it's worth uh, considering why that's the case when we've got record high population growth. Well, firms are going bust, insolvencies. Some developers are selling off projects to concentrate on lower risk developments. Um, also, there's been capacity constraints like shortages of materials, trades. There's been delays. But I think there's another factor at play, Chris, and that's that the non-residential construction sector, things like infrastructure proge- uh, projects, really strong and growing. So, um, that's adding uh, some pressures, I guess, or extra challenges for the residential sector, and also some major build-to-rent approvals uh, just getting across the line, especially in Melbourne, uh, Lend-Lease and Daiwa, they're big projects being approved. So that's basically it. So, so far anyway, construction cost growth, I mean, prices are still going up, but they're not going up at the mad rate that they were previously. So I guess on one level, this is really good news for inflation. Uh, because construction costs were one of the main drivers of inflation over the past year or two. Uh, But still, I would say some uncertainty about what actually happens next, given we've got record high population growth and also big infrastructure spend still ongoing. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting space, right? I think that depends on what you're building and whether your costs are going up. The materials you'll need um, could be different, right? And so, uh, I was chatting to a client exec at a massive construction company this week, and um, they build a lot of in they build lots of different areas. But you know, this is the industrial segment, and he was saying that the prices are definitely still going up. They can't get any certainty on what costs are going to be next year, um, and you know, they only really know till the end of this year. They, that's you know, they kind of buy it on you know forward pricing. Maybe six months they can lock in prices, but not longer than that. Everyone's been burnt in the construction industry's profits are um, and the. The sort of sinking fund, the little buffer fund that construction companies know that if a project goes bad, hey, we've got this money. They've really used that sinking fund, right? And I think not, and that's why firms are going, you know, bust because they didn't have a sinking fund or it wasn't enough. And I think that risk taking, this really should be a moment where, you know, if you wanted to build, you want to build into high population growth and very low supply when everyone else isn't building. You're more likely, but they can't get their projects off the ground. And um, Charter Keck um, put an interesting article together um, this week, and uh, he was basically, I, th- I think it was Richard there. He's, he's a good man, but um, he was saying that prices were going to go up by 25% on build to sell to make it worthwhile. So, you know, they're going to have to put these projects to market at 25% above what they've current uh, been doing in the past to make it worthwhile, and have to see if the market buys them. Um, and uh, that just shows that the margins are just not there to build. Um, the So I, I think it's going to be interesting. We're not seeing many clients doing renovations. So on a uh, – and we don't do much in the new build space and the off-the-plan space. So we don't really know what's happening there and new townhouses and things like that. Uh, but people looking to renovate their homes and doing significant renovations, that's fallen off a cliff compared to two years ago. Um Getting access to equity, the desire to do it under higher interest rates, the cost to build, 
um, they're just not really even considering it. If they are considering it, they're doing a much cut down version, something just to make it more livable or to get, you know, if they're running out of space, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do think there's going to be some real value out in doing builds in areas that are, are great um, and tick a lot of the lifestyle benefits, but those areas are usually hard to build in, right, Pete? Um, we usually do builds in pockets like high-rise or greenfield estates or middle and outer rings. We do townhouses. Um, it's not usually in those quintessential pockets where we're massively undersupplied. Yes, the latest ABS figures showed about 46,000 dwellings commenced in the March quarter. So that's off the cycle, those, but it's still pretty low when you think about it, especially with population growth running probably at 600,000 or so. The interesting thing is there's still, officially anyway, 240,000 dwellings under construction. I don't know where these all are. It's hard to, you know, I drive around the country a lot. I just don't know where uh, they where this 240,000 is coming from, but apparently still over 100,000 uh, detached homes under construction around the country, but they're just not being delivered. Um, actually, activity over the last quarter was down, um, so we're just not getting the completions through. So I guess, yeah, potentially some good news with cost pressures finally easing. Interesting you mentioned the Chartiquette Kramer article there. I always read what those guys have to say, um, especially Scott. They, uh, they just have some really great insights. The uh, reason I mentioned it is about two or three months ago, I wrote a, a, a sort of an opinion piece where I said new apartment prices are going to have to go up 25% before anyone's going to build. I mean, the cost of delivering medium density housing since 2019 has gone through the roof. And I just can't see it. But yeah, we'll get some projects through, particularly, I think, um, some of the more sort of luxury projects. But actually, on mass, getting big supply through, I just don't think it's going to happen until. There's more certainty and prices are rising, especially with the cost of capital. Um, so on to your point, Chris, about location. So there was a McGrath article actually out this week talking about the location and position of properties, how sought-after streets or streets within those areas are really the number one driver of demand for housing. And they went through a range of factors or variables that actually could change the price of property. So things like living close to water, obviously, uh, things like aspect. Um, so like north-facing uh, dwellings could be worth 20 to 25% more. Uh, other things they looked at, new infrastructure, uh, sort of a village location. So did you ever run through that? And what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think it was an interesting article. I mean, McGrath's offices are, you know, targeted towards the more affluent parts of our city right so you know i guess he's talking to his market which is people within those markets and but absolutely what he's talking about here is is what drives prices is the livability or the lifestyle benefit attached to those properties and people will pay more if it offers greater lifestyle or greater benefits and um so i think you know he made it one of the good points i, I do like the line in it said so if you are considering the um, identify the suburb to buy, but your budget limits you to the less popular streets in that area. I'd suggest reconsidering. Um, uh, look at the surrounding suburbs and buying the best streets there instead. Instead, buying a great position in a great suburb than a poor position in a great suburb. And I do think that's really true because you know there are risks involved buying the, the poorer properties with even within great suburbs. You know, you can get oversupply in downturns, you can overpay in hot markets. Um, and so you can really have a bit, you have to be a bit more luck to play in that market versus the, um, you know, you're just buying into a good suburb and you're buying good land. Um, I mean, you made some great points around the aspect. It's been a frustrating thing. I've just seen real estate agents misusing North Facing all the time, um, even the McGrath agents. So you should be 
um, you know, pulling the whip out on his uh, agents here to basically say, no, we need to set the standard and we can't call something north-facing if it's south-facing. Um, um, and, you know, north-facing is to the rear where you spend your living. You know, you want to be getting the sun to where you actually spend time in the property. Um, you don't want to be getting sun on the front porch and on that nice chair that you never go sit on. Um, infrastructure, I think, you know, it's got to be careful here trying to predict infrastructure and buy before infrastructure. Um, I'm up on the beaches. If people thought the beaches tunnel was going to get built and they bought up here thinking that's going to happen, well, that got canned um, just last year. I do think the village matters more now, right? Like the, the work from home hybrid movement, that sort of escapism from your home office just to pop up and grab a coffee and, you know, maybe in the morning you've got extra time just to spend up there and, you know, grab a brekkie or, you know, walk your kids to, to school, which maybe you would have rushed to the city. I think that village is, um, yeah, really even more important now. So uh, I just think there's, it's a good article just to get people to think about, you know, what really drives prices is its livability and um, even a suburb, within a suburb, different parts of the suburb have different benefits. So you have to take a compass to the open homes to work out uh, which is the right aspect. Yeah, I definitely agree on the village point. I um, I would pay more for a property where I could walk to a local coffee shop or cafe. Look at a place like uh, Sunshine Beach in um, uh, the Noosa Shire. It's just so popular. People love being able to walk to the beach, little shopping village, uh, a couple of nice cafes and restaurants and bars. It's just a really handy thing. Uh, Chris, I've got one question here before we move on. Um, uh, the article sort of said, yes, like a new roadway, tunnel or rail links can add uh, 30% to home values in a short period of time. I guess I understand here the point being if you buy in an area that was previously not connected and then it becomes better connected, then that can see an uplift to the value of your home. Here's my question, though. Um, so that point is uh, on the aspect north facing will often outperform south facing by 20 to 25% in value, which, yes, I get it if you're selling the property. Um, so they were saying, you know, with a house, you want a north aspect to the rear. So the backyard and the main living areas are nice and bright, plenty of natural light. And with apartments, you want the indoor and outdoor living areas to be facing north uh, for the same reasons. Now, um, here's my question. Let's say you've got a property for the sake of round numbers. It's a, it's a million bucks. But then there's another one that's north facing and it's 1.2. Now, does this actually matter for you as the buyer just from a pure numbers perspective? Because presumably, let's say sometime in the future, the property market has doubled. You've got a property that's not north-facing, that's selling for $2 million, but the north-facing one has still got that 20% premium. Does that actually make any difference? Or are things like gentrification, is that more important for price performance? Look, I, I probably uh, take a bit of grain and salt in the percentages here because um, I think they're maybe a little bit optimistic, right? I don't think they're that um, big. But I would say as the property suburb medium increases, I would say that people are willing to pay more for the additional lifestyle benefits because you start moving more and more up the, the pyramid, I guess. And so let's say it's a, a quintessential AAA, you know, high net worth suburb like a Mossman, for example, I could absolutely see that if you get a dream block that's a north-facing there that's got the views um, and that's much – people absolutely will pay because they've got the ability to um, and those properties won't turn over. If you go down the spectrum and you go more and more down into the – I don't think people have got the budgets to pay for this and I don't think people will because they'll change their suburb. I think they'll say, well, if I could buy in a better suburb for 1.2 versus a mil, I'll go and buy south-facing in a better suburb. So – I don't think these benefits matter as much in the, the the lower part of the market, but
But I do think as they go up the median price, and suburbs shift median prices, right? That's how prices go up. Um, the demand in a suburb can shift through gentrification, I would say. And those buyers before didn't want those things. They didn't want the big houses. They didn't want the views. They, but now all of a sudden it's a new buyer coming that have been pushed out of other suburbs and then they're valuing these things. And so they've got the ability to pay for them. So I think the numbers you use are, are too big. Um, but I do think that the purpose of the article, and I think from a capital growth point of view, I do think that, um, yeah, you're you more protected if you buy a property that's not compromised, right? And so you've got to be careful taking on two compromises. If it's south-facing plus it's a busy road, well, good luck trying to sell it in this market, right? Um, and if you potentially try to buy that property in a hot market, you potentially overpaid because you, you didn't pay enough um, didn't get it for enough of a discount to the premium properties. and um, But in the, if you buy that property that isn't compromised, like it's not a busy road and maybe it has got good aspects um, and it's a decent size block um, and a decent type of block, then in this market, if you try to sell it, well, there's not many of those on the market. You'll probably still get a better price. And so that's just the issue with buying properties that have you know not got the things that buyers really want is you are a bit at the mercy of the market when you sell. And no one knows when they're going to sell. Death, divorce lifestyle shifts, kids, you know, um, financial difficulty, life decision change. You don't really know when you're going to sell your home. You think you do, but people's lives change. I think you've answered my question. Yeah, scarcity matters, especially, uh, I guess, as you move up the price points. And, yeah, so I mean, Australia's population today is 26 million, but one day it'll be 36 million. And, yeah, also the cycle thing is important. You know, various points in the cycle – You've got a compromised property, not easy to rent, not easy to sell. Um, so, yes, uh, certainly pay attention to those aspects uh, to the extent that the budget allows. I guess there's often this question about whether busy roads in the future might be quieter with electric vehicles. Well, let's park that one for another day. Um, so, Chris, second story, new Reserve Bank governor. So, Philip Lowe, uh, maybe not that surprisingly, uh, given all of the media coverage, has got his marching orders. Uh, new appointment, Michelle Bullock, uh, maybe a political aspect to this possibly uh, now michelle bullock's been a central banker for four decades and she's a reserve bank insider so to me this suggests continuity rather than a dramatic reform or change of uh, approach um so generally by financial markets considered a safe bet some stability which is probably welcomed by markets um, so there will be some changes eight meetings a year instead of 11 uh, but i think more generally, just it's a nicer time to take over. I think we've seen this week, UK inflation fell by much more than expected. New Zealand inflation down from 67 to 6%. So it looks like disinflation is happening not only in the US and uh, Canada, but also now UK, New Zealand, and presumably Australia is going to follow. Um, so what did you make of it? Any key takeaways? Look, I think... Um... You know, the world constantly surprises us every year, right? Um, so maybe it's a nicer time to take over right now because we know what's happened in the last seven years. But I think, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next seven years. And, you know, when we look, because uh, I think it's a seven-year term, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, if it's seven years from now, so in the past 2016, so you had a proper property boom, you had to slow this down. Then you had a Sydney housing market crash, you had the Royal Commission um, you had a change of potential government in 2019. You had a real tightening of lending. You, they cut rates at the same times that um, borrowing capacity went up. Then they had the whole COVID situation. I mean, who knows what's coming in the next seven years? I think that's the that's what makes life interesting, to be honest. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think it's a good time to come on. But, you know, she's got a lot of heat on her, to be honest, um, because, you know, households are hurting. And um, if this, if the inflation does get stay sticky, which leads into our, you know, this discussion really, um, you know, if she's going to be the one that's, you know, RBA matters a lot right now, more than it probably did ever in the past. Um, you know, maybe in the 90s, it was a big problem, right? So, yeah, it's an it's a, it's a interesting job at the moment. You are probably on the chop. There's no easy way at the moment. People just, they don't really value you when you're cutting rates, uh, but they, they really hurt, you know, target you when you're increasing rates. I believe there's much more scrutiny these days. I think it's largely because of online media and social media. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, look, everyone's always had opinions, but now literally every man and his dog has an opinion on what the Reserve Bank should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, they always say never read their comments underneath articles, but there's some wild stuff out there. But yeah, there's um, you know, challenges, as you said, households under stress. I think one of the key challenges at the moment is high population growth. And um, I think this has been alluded to uh, by the um, outgoing governor. You know, there's, there's putting pressure on uh, infrastructure, housing supply. Looks like there's, there's a real critical apartment under supply in some areas, and that's not going to be solved anytime soon. Um, so, I mean, and this could actually reignite inflation. I mean, who really knows? As you said, there's an unpredictable element to all of this stuff. And yes, inflation's been falling in all these other countries, but we've got very high population growth and we've got uh, plenty of challenges still to be navigated. And I, I guess, as you said, uh, if you're potentially going to um, oversee a stretch as governor, you're quite likely to see at least a per capita recession, if not a full recession, um, as well as an upturn and a recovery. So uh, there's plenty of interesting stuff ahead. Uh, market pricing has calmed down quite a bit this week. The terminal rate, as I look here today, 4.35. So that's basically saying one more interest rate hike and then done for the cycle. Uh, obviously, this is a movable feast. Um, and there's a couple of key uh, figures to be released before the next meeting. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that one uh, plays out. Um, so, Chris, uh, this uh, third news story of the week, students take housing shortage to the next level, which actually does tie in uh, to the population growth point. So we've got a near record student intake, more than 500,000 visas issued in financial year 2023, up from about 400,000 last year. And this is obviously following the low during COVID, so we don't have this massive snapback. Now, I guess this is a, a two-pronged issue. So it's good for labour shortages, and it will certainly take the pressure off things like wages growth uh, because students can fill many of those uh, sort of roles that were in short supply, things like retail, um, hospitality, and so on. But it does add to the strain on the housing supply. Now, the I IPA uh, claimed this week that students occupy 70% of new housing in the 2023 financial year. So, yes, there's lots of longer-term benefits of bringing in international students and then graduates, uh, sort of younger people who will pay tax for a long time. They reduce the dependency ratio, improve the skills. But, uh, and yes, obviously, we're forging links with Asia, particularly India, China, and countries like that. But it does have an issue at the moment in particular, um, hearing more people talk about high population growth just because of those pressures on things like infrastructure, roads, and especially housing. 
Yeah, I think we've got to be careful with, um, you know, what's the kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, right? Um, and, you know, you look what's been our success story over, you know, generations, I would say, is that, you know, the lifestyle benefits of living in Australia and you've got demographic issues, which we've spoken about across the world. And, um, you know, just because people have wanted to move here in the past doesn't mean that we want that in the future. And so, yeah, we definitely um, got to be careful uh managing this but we we don't want anyone to say shut the doors and right no unis can't have any overseas students right because all of a sudden it gives an opportunity to a lot of countries around the world that will take those students and and maybe we'll be wishing in a few years time that um we didn't do that right i think uh yeah i mean i think the there is some positive signs with inflation around the world right pete i think on your last point i think is that new zealand starting to look much better um the canada the us has got under three percent as well so um, you know, if we're on that trajectory, then, you know, things are looking better. I just, the, the whole new, you know, students, the, the money that comes in for the university, their family come and then the tourism money, um, the family may move here, you know, they they stay here. They've, we haven't changed, needed that uh, 20 year old. We didn't have to put them through university and childcare. And, but all of a sudden, they're a productive person of our labor force if they stick around. So, I don't know. It's 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 a, it's a touchy one, this right, Pete. But if we're importing too many people um, and talent, I guess people who are working and we haven't got enough housing, then we're going to have other pressures. Um, maybe the infrastructure and our public transport pressures aren't there because of the hybrid work. I think that's really eased a lot of that pressure. Which um, you know, Gladys was really worried about that back in you know pre-COVID. Right? We need to slow down Sydney because we, our infrastructure can't handle it. You know, our roads and our um, our trains, but COVID sort of um, slowed that down. Yeah, this has been a, an ongoing issue. So the, the previous coalition government had um, the uncapped international student working hours, which I think was it was important at the time, but there was an issue with people sort of saying, well, students are coming on student visas, but really it's a sort of a backdoor work visa situation. Uh, the current government's extended post-study work rights. So now... You know, a lot of uh, people are saying, well, the student visa is effectively more like a long-term residency visa, even though the take-up historically hasn't been as high as you might expect. Uh, but it, it does seem there's, there's been a shift of focus, I think, particularly towards India. I wonder whether the falling population in China and the cooling uh, relationship politically um, with China, that's seeing the uh, Labour government has certainly been spending a lot of time uh, sort of angling for more Indian students and building pathways there uh, for migration. So, yeah, there's a, a lot happening there. I mean, the IPA figures, they project a net housing shortage of 252,800 dwellings by 2028. I love that these uh, forecasts are so accurate down to the, <laughs> the nearest <laughs> dwelling. But, I, I mean, you can't predict... Um, uh, net surpluses and shortages that accurately because people are you know, the 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 population is much more flexible and we're seeing at the moment massive increase in the number of people applying for a flat share um, with uh, websites like flatmates.com.au um, so you know the, the the number of dwellings isn't necessarily um, the the key indicator here it's actually the way people use the dwelling stock. Uh, but I think the overarching point is there's a lot of pressure on housing. We're not building it quickly enough. And we've got a lot of people coming in, I suppose. Yeah, I think the hospitality industry, you know, domestic services, you know, a lot of people, jobs that people do when they are studying, um, 
you know, nanny services, you know, that there's lots of things that I think that um, international students do while they're studying and, um, you know, good on them for wanting to live in, you know, to move to Australia and, um, and create a life and, and have a family, I think. And if it does create issues, it does create issues with wage growth in certain industries, I do say, though, when, um, you know, there's that keeps a lid on uh, the ability to, um, you know, be undersupplied, right, and then that pushes wages up. But, I do think, you know, employment's going to be a big problem with technology and things like that. And it's, you know, we've always got to be investing in our personal capital, constantly be reskilling. No one's safe in over, you know, the next working career. Um, and I think you've got to always be conscious of that and um, be doing things to, to keep improve your own human capital. That's just the nature of the world we live in. It definitely is. I mean, all of Australia's biggest exports have been things like uh, iron ore, natural gas, uh, coal, of course. Uh, but outside of the stuff that gets dug out of the ground, if, um, international education is is the biggest export for Australia, and then tourism is also a big one, uh, which is in some ways interconnected. Um, so I guess just to wrap up on the housing point, uh, from 25, 2025 to 2028, it's expected that international students will take up approximately one quarter of Australia's net new housing supply, said the IPA. I think... Um, this is just an interesting uh, thing, Chris, that the composition of the housing stock, if you look over the next, say, decade, we're going to see more build-to-rent housing, but that's going to be stuff that um, is not for sale. That's that's only going to be units that are built for renters. I think previous, that's going to replace what used to be bought by the offshore investors in China, those sort of units that were built specifically for investors. Um, but then we've got uh, international students taking up maybe a a quarter of the the sort of the net additions to the housing stock is not going to leave a whole lot for sale when you look at the different uh, composition. Um, but these things go in a cycle, and um, it wasn't so many years ago we were talking about a glut. So I suppose uh, you do have the cyclical element to it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I think uh, dwelling turnover has been reducing for a long time, Pete. You know, the amount of people that uh, as a percentage of trading their property. We used to live in our properties for seven to nine years. Now we live in our houses for 14 years in Sydney. You know, everyone's, And that means that there's less um, property for sale each year, which is one of the things that supports prices. I think a lot of people are stuck in their homes. They'd love to upgrade or would love to move to a, a new city. But stamp duty, selling costs, the uh, getting finance, taking on that additional debt, um, the fear of getting it wrong um, and the costs, you know, to, have to, to go to switch houses is actually really expensive. So I think absolutely um, I can't see that problem changing, you know, um, even if they did things like um, re- reduced stamp duty to land tax, ultimately I think that would be baked pretty much quickly into prices um, because new transactions would be new debt-creating events, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I think with dwelling turnover and actual listings on the market is is real supply. Supply isn't 11 million dwellings. You can never buy 11 million dwellings on the market. Good luck, China, at the moment. I think it's 150,000, Pete, on the market. Um, and usually that's been 200, 300, right? And so the actual supply right now is about 150 places you can purchase. Um, and we spoke about last week there's a bit of it listings increase it's not a story we covered this week but um it's got a lot of media this week um you know ceos of big real estate companies have been you know talking about it um but you know the context around that is is it's not in areas like you know the eastern suburbs of sydney or the northern beaches or the inner west um 
there has been a little bit increase in the lower north of the city, but I would argue that's a lot of investors selling units. Um, but it has been a huge increase in investor hotspots, people who have gone to chase yield and cash flow. Um, and now they're realizing that that positive cash flow is still has gone negative. They realize that they can't afford their house and this investment property. And now it's time to bail on their investment properties. And I think this is a story we'll really track over the next month or two. That's where the supply is coming from in Australia. I read this week in the US that dwelling turnover there is falling towards just 1% because the Fed has um, obviously increased um, the funds rate from basically zero to five in no time. And um, very different dynamic though in the US market. Most people are on 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Now they're around 7% or thereabouts. Um, and it's just gummed up the entire market. I, I don't think it will be as extreme in Australia because most people are either on variable rate mortgages or short-term fixed rate mortgages. So we don't have those big, long 30-year fixed rates. And for that reason, I don't think we'll see uh, dwelling turnover collapse to anything like the same extent. But it is sort of happening. And as you said, uh, listings have been low, turnover has been low. And um, what we really need, I guess, is around the world inflation to come right back down. And um, if interest rates started going the other way, then that would spark activity again. But certainly things have been gummed up, um, but not maybe quite so much in Australia as in the US. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's if you are on a great 30-year fixed rate of 2% uh, or lower than that, I think they even got, I'm not exactly sure, but they were very cheap. And if you sell this property, you have to take a new mortgage out and that's at 7% for the next 30 years. Why would you you trade, right? And But you might want to, you might need to, you might, you know, you need a bigger room and a bigger house or you don't want to be living in this area, there's a job opportunity. And so that's not great for worker mobility. That's not great for productivity. Um, that's not great for society and livability. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out um, in the in the US. I think listings are one thing to really watch, but stock or inventory is another thing to to watch. Right? If listings go up uh, dramatically, but that gets absorbed by the market in a reasonable fashion, and days on markets don't blow out, and buyers still feel like they haven't got enough choice, well, there's nothing to worry about. But if listings increase and inventory stock on the market starts to increase, buyers start to say, why would I buy now? I'm just going to sit on my hands. There's, they've got a plethora of choice. I, there's no FOMO. Prices are falling. Why, I'll let the seller come to me. I'll lowball. Lower prices create, um, you know, oh, if they that sold for 330 not 350 prices are falling. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to offer 300 the desperate seller who can't hold on sells for 300 You start to get this negative spiraling event. And um, that's ultimately like inventory that sits on the market than then when people have to sell because they're forced to sell. And banks are more likely to, in those situations, when they see the forecast in those markets, banks have the best data in the, in the, um, in the property world. They can see what people have got from an income point of view, what they're spending, what their cash flow is, what the properties they hold. They get individual uh, and then they can do that collective data as well. The banks absolutely will go, if we see risks in certain areas, we want to get out of those and minimise our loan losses in these pockets um, rather than what they would do in areas where they're not concerned, offer payment holidays, extend interest only. They've got powers. So it's a, it's a really, I'm not calling a doomsday scenario here, but that's what the issue, that's what more supply, more inventory sitting on the market that ultimately flips it from a, a, a real, you know, seller you know, into a real buyer's market. Um, and uh, that can be quite dire for prices. Those people in the US who got their 
30-year fixed-rate mortgages with a two-handle. It's got to be one of the greatest inflation hedges, um, <laughs> you know, generational opportunity. I, I was actually flicking through my uh, sort of uh, docs this week, and I saw we fixed um, a, a mortgage at 2% for five years in the UK, but you just can't get those really long mortgage terms in Australia or United Kingdom. They're just um, different uh, different setup. Um, and I think in some ways it's a strength for Australia. There's um, monetary policy can be uh, more powerful and more effective more quickly uh, because most people are on variable rates or at very least those shorter term fixed rate mortgages. Um, so I think that's about it for this week, Chris. Um, so uh, thanks everyone so much for tuning in. Always um, do send us your property questions. There's a link in the show notes or if you just want to say hello, you can catch me at my daily blog, Pete Ward on Blogspot or at Pete Wardian on Twitter. Um, and if you're interested in buying property in Brisbane, uh, we're the people to see. And um, you should always subscribe for the Rask podcast, of course, on your favourite podcast player or on the YouTube channel. And Chris, if people want to have a chat to you about mortgages um, at Blusk, uh, where should they go to for more? Just in the show notes, if you've been listening for a while, you probably know that by now. Pete's blog, definitely be... Um jumping on that as well um and definitely try to come to any of the road shows if it's um if you've got the ability to in any of the cities um pete's going to a bunch i'm going to a bunch as well and um yeah there'll be uh, there'll be good times i've got the hawaiian show ready and um take it easy on the footsill chris we need you in uh, full working order for the road show <laughs> so no broken wrists in the meantime That's uh, right. so yeah enjoy your week and um we'll see you next episode cheers happy sunday Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.